0: is always on but you shouldn't be put junk sleep to bed at Mattress Firm's Black Friday now sale save up to 60% on Sealy with queen mattresses starting at $279.99 talk to a sleep expert today and unjunk your sleep there and welcome to part 2 of the English Civil War with me Dan the Viking on your favourite history podcast this week in history. Now before we get started and before we carry on from last week's episode, I do just want to introduce you all to my new podcast with Lee from Realm of the Supernatural and that is over on your Apple podcast you can get it on Apple Spotify or any of the other uh, sites that you listen to this podcast we're available on that one as well and the show is called Apple absolute poppycock okay so it might sound a bit strange for those of you who don't know what poppycock means but poppycock is essentially an english slang term for rubbish what a load of rubbish what a load of poppycock so we have decided to do a podcast together um which is not history based and it's not supernatural based essentially it is just two guys Talking about random things and having a bit of a laugh. And hopefully something there for you guys to be a little bit entertained. Um, And it's not supposed to be taken seriously. So it's not a serious podcast like this one. It's just something for both of us to branch out into something a little bit separate so if you're interested in that and you do have amazon apple spotify anything like that get yourselves over to absolute poppycock and you can join us on the facebook page as well with that one Uh, we are on there as well same as with this one if you're not on facebook get yourselves over to this week in history so without further ado we are going to carry on from last week's episode on the english civil war now The English Civil War in the 1600s was a very turmoiled place and a very dangerous place to live depending on what side of the alliances you fell, whether that be parliamentary or royalist. Now, it worked out pretty bad depending on who you were and depending on what area you were. Okay, So if you were a royalist in the north of England, you were probably okay. However, if you were a royalist in the southeast london or essex uh, suffolk norfolk that sort of area it was probably not very good and vice versa for the royalists uh, sorry for the parliamentarians so we started last episode and we talked about the reasons for the english civil war and why the civil war came to be now this episode will be more about the actual wars themselves so for those of you who haven't listened to the first episode you ...probably might benefit from going back over them and listening to that episode. Um, Or if you didn't really understand it, listen to it again just to get the the points down... ...because it is quite detailed, the last episode. And this episode might not make sense if you haven't listened or don't understand the reasons for the English Civil War. So we left last week at the Battle of Edge Hill. Now the Battle of Edge Hill, had it have fallen uh, to the Royalists on that day... It's pretty conclusive that the Civil War would have been over there and then. It was King Charles's best chance to win the Civil War. And this was the first battle. Um, well, there were skirmishes, but the first real battle. Unfortunately, the Parliamentarians won the battle. And when they left the area, they scarped back to London and retook the city from the king. So now the king does not have the capital of London. King Charles was forced to settle for the second best, I suppose, second best option, and he set up his base or his court in the town of Oxford, which I'm sure many of you have heard of. The advantage the parliamentarians had with London was by controlling London, meant they controlled trade into England. At the start of the English Civil War, All of the main ports were parliamentary. So the parliamentarians had basically a massive advantage over the royalists. Added to that, they had the navy. So Britain, obviously, as I'm sure many of you are aware, and probably listeners of this podcast are very aware, that British navy is pretty much... The main powerhouse of the British Empire, um, and this stretches back all the way back to Francis Drake and the Spanish Armada, and potentially even before uh, Queen Elizabeth and that era. So, even like I say, even we did an episode on the Mary Rose, that is sort of a an, an early Tudor ship. So, the, you're talking a couple of hundred years after that. Um, you can understand how powerful the navy actually is. And with the parliamentarians controlling the navy, you know, they pretty much had, they had a massive upper hand in this war. During the winter of 1642, very little happened apart from a handful of skirmishes across the country. Basically, the royalists and the parliamentarians spent the winter and coming into 1643 cementing their positions and basically gaining support in the counties that they already controlled. The numbers, however, on land were with the Royalists. The Royalists controlled most of the north of England. They were extending their reaches into Yorkshire. They controlled most of the west country and Wales, and they controlled Cornwall and a lot of the southern counties as well. The Parliamentarians controlled the right-hand side, like I said, East Anglia, going up into Lincolnshire, Um, ...and they also controlled London. The Midlands, however, which for those of you who don't know... ...is the middle of England, that was pretty much open ground. It was anybody's game. The problem the Royalists had was a severe lack of equipment. Okay, Which sounds really strange when you think this is the King's Army... ...and the Parliamentarian Army had access to more. And the reason for that is most of the main garrisons in the UK or in England at that time were under parliamentary control so the main garrison in London was parliamentarian the main garrison in Hull which is the north of England is also parliamentarian so you had an an issue there where the, the king could not get hold of muskets which meant when he went into battles in 1643 into the summer he was coming up against muskets when he only had pikemen now, it basically relied on the king to outmaneuver and out tactically outwit his opponents. Now, in February 1643, his wife Queen Henrietta went to Holland, and she pawned the crown jewels so she could buy money. Oh, sorry, so she could buy money. Of course, she could buy money. So she could buy arms for the king. She arrived in Bridlington. When she got there. Uh, marquis of newcastle who is uh, a royalist who i will from now on call newcastle Um, this is not the town it's just his name so the marquis of newcastle uh, basically created a convoy to move these arms from bridlington all the way down to oxford to distract the parliamentarians from this uh, convoy of arms uh, Prince Rupert, who we uh, discussed in the earlier episode, who is the king's nephew, Prince Rupert of the Rhine, he attacked Birmingham, the garrison of Birmingham, and he took the town just north of Birmingham called Lichfield. Now, this was obviously a distraction, however, as what happened in many, many cases the parliamentarians took advantage of the fact that the army was not in that position and took the town of reading just to the outside of london so you find a lot throughout the english civil war is when the parliamentarians attacked one town they left the town open for the royalists and vice versa so this happens quite a lot and this was what happened in april in 1843 sorry 1643 so basically there was a stalemate and there was no massive decisive victory. That was until the Battle of Lansdowne Hill, where two old friends would face off against each other Hopton on the royalist and William Waller on the Parliamentarians. These were both commanders of their field armies and they met at Lansdowne Hill just outside the town of Bath. Now, the parliamentarians had the advantage in the battle. They had the upper hill. They had the ground. Um, but the royalists from Cornwall. So bearing in mind, at this point in time, Cornwall was uh, was royalist, uh, but Devon was parliamentarian. So if you ever look at a map of England, you will see the bottom left hand foot that sticks out. The tip of that is Cornwall, and the massive chunk. Next to it is Devon. So Cornwall was squished with no support and they had to fight out and that's what they did at Bath. And this was a massive victory for the Royalists. The Royalists pushed the Parliamentarians back to a town called Devizes where they were reinforced from the main army from Oxford and they took the town. What they did was they pushed the Parliamentarians back to where they came from and back to London this gave the royalists basically the entire south, south coast of England. And it gave them a little bit more of an advantage. What they then did was they turned their sights to the town of Bristol. So if you remember at the start, I told you that most of the main ports were under royalist, uh, sorry, under parliamentarian control. Bristol was a port, or is a port, that is just to the south of Wales and it is, um, if you, you need to google it it's just to the bottom of Wales but it is in England um, and it's a major port it's an absolutely vital port if anyone's interested it's where Blackbeard comes from uh, if you ever remember back to the Blackbeard episode he left Bristol so it's on the west coast and the royalists turned their, their attention to that town and they concentrated their full army on the town of Bristol Prince Rupert split his forces. He sent the Cornish infantry to the south of the city and he took his cavalry to the north of the city. Both attacked at the same time and both suffered very, very high casualties. The Cornish infantry was absolutely decimated uh, by this. However, Prince Rupert found a way into the town and started to feed his army into the town or into the city and after a fierce battle in the city center so this wasn't even like on the outskirts they literally got into the city center and were fighting in the streets uh, did the parliamentarians um, surrender once they surrendered the the town was was now in royalist control and it was a massive massive victory for the royalists bristol like i said was it was basically one of the biggest cities in the country It had a huge uh, shipping industry and was the home of one of the biggest rifle manufacturers during the Civil War period. Meaning that the Royalists now had some way of getting hold of rifles. By the end of the war, they they reckon around 90% of muskets in the Royalist army were Bristol made. Once Bristol was secure, the advice from the generals was to the king, now we need to attack London. The king, however, dilly-dallied a little bit and decided in his infinite wisdom to attack the town of Gloucester. Now, Gloucester is still in the West Country. It's just outside of, of Wales. It's not far from Bristol, maybe 20, 30 miles from Bristol. However, Gloucester was the only stronghold left in the West of England. So there is an argument that it does make sense to take out The town of Gloucester. And then the king then has full control. Of the west of the country. However. He was in a position of very very good strength. And was possibly in his best position. To attack London at that point. However as I'm sure you've probably. Known or been aware already. That King Charles. Was pretty much. Self-involved. What he thought was right. That's what he was going to do. So he decided to split his army, um, sort of, I would say, 70-30, send the smaller part of his army down to the little town of Exeter, which was a small parliamentary stronghold in the west, nowhere near as big as Gloucester, um, but still, you know, worth taking. And he sent the main bulk of his army to Gloucester, against the advice. Now, when you look at it from the trade aspect... The two main routes into England are the east and the west. Okay, The east coast will bring you in through the Thames, through the Thames Valley and into London, and then out uh, into Berkshire and Reading and up into Oxford. That was blocked. There was no way they could get any trade in through that side because the Thames Valley was controlled by the parliamentarians. The town of Gloucester sat on the River Severn. The River Severn comes in through Bristol, up into Gloucester, and then into the Midlands that way. The River Severn was the best option that they could have had to get any sort of trade in through um, from, out, from overseas. And the only thing that was stopping them was the city of Gloucester. If they could take Gloucester, they could open the Severn Valley. Unfortunately, King Charles does not want to send in his troops the same way as he did at Bristol and risk very, very high casualties and death. So he decides to lay siege to the town. Now, Gloucester is very, very well defended. It has very good walls and it only has around 1,500 men defending the town. However, with the lack of artillery and the lack of uh, ammunition that the Royalists have, ...the siege is pretty useless and and actually fails. So he wastes a lot of time sieging a city that he's never going to take... ...and doesn't capitalise on the victories that he's made at this point. And the reason he fails to take Gloucester... ...or one of the main reasons he fails to take Gloucester... ...because he doesn't react quick enough to take the city... ...and he plays the long game with a siege... It gives the parliamentarians chance to build an army and, and attack him. The Earl of Essex comes to Gloucester's aid. Basically, at the right time, from all historical evidence, it suggests that the town of Gloucester, when the Earl of Essex arrives, was down to its last barrel of gunpowder. In other words, if he'd have waited an extra week, that town would have had to have surrendered. Essex basically made a rod for his own back though by doing this because when the royalists realized he was coming, they fled. They fled to the town of Newbury, which is just south of London. In this instance, they've now created a big problem for the Earl of Essex. His safe haven is London, and standing between him and London is a very big royalist army. The Battle of Newbury could have been a massive massive result for king charles unfortunately it was pretty much a stalemate it was a draw or it was in indecisive however you want to word it essentially the king retreated because he was running out of ammunition and there was no real sign of him getting any back the parliamentarians lost a lot of men the royalists lost a lot of men the Parliamentarians managed to gain their access back to London, and the King retreated away from Newbury. So, I suppose when you look at it, it was almost, I would say, a Parliamentarian victory, rather than a stalemate, because Essex managed to get back to London. However, in the history books, it's down as a draw, so read to that what you want. But, essentially at this point in the war, This is known as the turning point in the Civil War. Up until this point, the king was doing pretty well. He'd taken the West Country, he'd taken the Port of Bristol. He was doing really, really well. Then he pisses around at Gloucester fails to take the city and fails to capitalise on the main army from the Earl of Essex at the Battle of Newbury. So realistically the king is his own downfall at this point in 1643 so whilst this was going on in the south of england there was fights going on in the north of england as well on the royalist side we have the earl of newcastle and on the parliamentary side the commander was thomas fairfax who was known as black tom because uh, he had black hair basically now the royalists under the Earl of Newcastle managed to take the towns of Newark and Belvoir, which are, uh, I would say, it's hard to describe. They're in the Midlands, uh, to the east hand side of the Midlands, somewhere between Coventry and Norwich. If you know, if you know the map of England, you'll know where they are. However like I said before what you tended to find was a bit of back and forth and whilst these two towns were being taken by the Royalists Fairfax managed to take the town of Leeds and Wakefield now Leeds I'm pretty sure most of you have heard of that is a town in Yorkshire Wakefield is just outside of Leeds so again there's this back and forth going you take one town we'll take your town backwards and forwards throughout the entire it's basically the entire war almost it was inevitable, though, that the main bulk of Newcastle's army was to meet the main bulk of Fairfax's army. Now, this happened in the spring of 1642 at a town called Adwalton Moor. Now, the Battle of Adwalton Moor saw 10,000 Royalist troops come up against a similar number, but very, very untrained parliamentary troops. In other words... It was a pretty easy victory for for the Royalists. The reason the parliamentarians had to get involved in the battle, they didn't really want to, was the fact that had they not done this, the town of Bradford would have been taken by the Royalists. Um unfortunately for the parliamentarians the town of Bradford was taken quickly after the battle of Adwalton Moor and the Fairfax army retreated back to Hull now this meant that the entire northeast of England uh, apart from the town of Hull was now in royalist hands and also most of Yorkshire as well so it was a very very decisive battle and it put the the swing back in the royalist favour in the north of England whilst this was going on, like I said battles elsewhere, there was a big battle going on in the county of Lincolnshire, now this is where I live, and there was a battle at a town called Gainsborough where one of the royalist officers, a man uh, called Cavendish, he was actually the cousin of the Earl of Newcastle, was killed on the battlefield and his army came up against a man who probably most of you know and this was the first time we saw Colonel Oliver Cromwell on the parliamentary side he took the city of Gainsborough unfortunately for him he didn't hold it for very long because Newcastle heard of the news and decided to come down and take the town of Gainsborough Uh, Newcastle then pushed on to take Lincoln And Cromwell was forced back to the town of Peterborough, where he settled in. This leaves the Earl of Newcastle in a bit of a predicament. He's got 15,000 men. He could chase Oliver Cromwell into Peterborough, although probably not a good idea to lay siege to a city that big. Or he could travel down to the Thames Valley, meet up with the King and take control of London. Or, he could do what he does do, and that is turn his attention to the city of Hull. Because that's where Thomas Fairfax is with his army, and if he disappears from the north of England, there is enough men in Hull to cause a lot of problems for the rest of Yorkshire and north of England, especially when there's no army there to protect them. Now, you might be wondering why he decides to turn around and go to Hull. And this is something that historians have spoken about for a long time. Mainly, the reasons behind it is Hull sits on the east coast of England. There is a direct line between Hull and Holland. The Royalist Army obviously are getting supplies from Holland thanks to the sale of the crown jewels. At the moment, the only way these supplies can get into Britain is through the English Channel down under the south coast of England, up around the back, and into Bristol. If they could open the port of Hull, there is a direct link between the Netherlands and Hull, and it wouldn't take them very long to to get the supplies. We'd also give the Royalists basically the entire north of England. Hull had the second biggest armoury in the country. It was pretty much the best. It was a good option. It was a very good option. Unfortunately for Newcastle, he wasn't able to take the city, which is understandable. If anybody can see the city of Hull, it's on the water. It's on the River Humber, and the back of Hull backs onto the river. And there, at this time, not not anymore, but the city walls went from coast to coast. So if you can imagine like a a D-shaped almost, and the straight line of the D would be on the the river and the rest of it is walled in. So it's virtually impossible to take. And not only that, you can't really lay siege to a city that can get supplies because the Navy is owned by the parliamentarians and it's very, very easy for them to resupply Hull through the river, through the port. Basically, it was a it was never going to happen however if he had have done it it probably could have changed the whole the whole concept of the war but it didn't so yeah it's debated amongst historians as to whether it was a uh, whether he, he made the right decision or not personally I think he made the right decision but he just couldn't capitalize on, on the city so by the end of 1643 pretty much everything had gone the royalists way they controlled north of Yorkshire they controlled most of Yorkshire they controlled all of Lincolnshire they controlled the entire west coast and the south west of England basically they controlled roughly three quarters to two thirds of the entire land mass of, of England and Wales pretty substantial I would say Added to this, you've got the parliamentarians who are sat in office, arguing constantly. Some of them want to carry on the war, some of them don't. A lot of them don't. A lot of them want to come up with a peace treaty with the king because they're losing. So they want to to settle while they're losing. And unfortunately for the ones who want to carry on, there is a man in parliament who dies in December. Uh, 1643, and that man is John Pym. Now, John Pym was possibly one of the most outspoken politicians ab- against the royal f- uh, against the royals, and he was very, very influential in basically the cause of the civil war. John Pym, however, got one last feather in his cap before he died. And that was to negotiate what was known as the Covenant of the Scots. In other words, he'd created a treaty with Scotland. Now, this put 20,000 men at parliamentary command. 20,000 Scots. These were not your average soldiers. These were very, very well trained. They were regular soldiers. A lot of them had been fighting... Uh, on the continent during the Thirty Years' War, they were they were dangerous, and they were essential to the Parliament's uh, basically the Parliament's carrying on carrying on the war. They had a committee now between the two kingdoms where the essentially they wanted Parliament to include Scotland in everything that it did. Um, they really built up this, this really good treaty between England and Scotland that essentially was to benefit no one but the parliamentarian side. These 20,000 troops from Scotland were going to come down and cause some real problems. The parliamentarians also came up with a religion. Uh, based, not Not came up with a religion, but they agreed that both scotland and england would worship exactly the same scotland was presbyterian and they assumed that the parliamentarians meant that england would go presbyterian this was not the case and it actually led to the breakup of this agreement at a later date once the scottish had realized they'd actually been tricked by the parliamentarians um, or it was left very ambiguous, let's say that the treaty was left very, yeah, very ambiguous, could have gone either way. Um, the Scottish made the assumption that obviously their religion was going to be the religion of both countries, obviously, when they realised that wasn't the case. But for now, it was a good treaty, and Scotland's 20,000 men were there. On the Parliamentarian side. The Scottish army. Led by Alexandra Leslie. The Earl of Leven, Came into England. Now the Earl of Newcastle. Decided to try and hold the line. At the River Tyne. In Newcastle. And he marched his army north. As he did this. The Fairfaxes decided to come out of Hull. And take the town of Selby. Now when they took the town of Selby. They left York the capital of the north of England which was a very strong royalist stronghold completely open and this gave the Earl of Newcastle a bit of a a predicament does he stay and wait for the Scottish army to come down potentially lose the city of York or does he turn around and march back to York protect the capital in the north but allow the Scots to come over the border Now, he decides to turn around and go to York. Much to everyone's surprise, the Scottish army doesn't lay siege to any towns on its way down. They chase the Earl of Newcastle to the city of York, where they meet Thomas Fairfax, and the two armies combined lay siege to York. If York falls... The whole of the north of england will fall with it the king can't afford to lose york and the king can't send his army north because his army's in the south so he sends prince rupert with a very small number of men north to take the city and gives rupert instructions to gain more men on his way up the king moves his troops from the city of oxford to worcester and realises that Worcester is going to be attacked he writes a letter to Rupert and says to him basically get your ass here, don't worry about York get here and save me this letter is very ambiguous and this happens a lot throughout history he's not sure, when Rupert gets the letter he's not sure what the king actually means and what on the one hand he's saying in this letter we can't lose the town of york and on the other hand he's saying but i need you here right now so rupert's left with a bit of a predicament and i think the way he interprets it is i've got to try and secure york first i've got a couple of days grace to sort this out and then i can then i have to march as quickly as possible to Worcester the main problem he faced was there was now a third army that had joined the parliamentarians at York under the Earl of Manchester so you now have the Scots the Earl of Manchester and the Fairfax army all besieging the city of York and Rupert is outnumbered two to one Rupert knows he can't go into battle until he meets up with the Earl of Newcastle's army inside York So he goes the long way round, he goes around the sieging armies and into the city. This worked. The parliamentarians, realising that a siege was very unlikely to succeed, now marched off. This left Rupert with a decision to make. Does he chase the parliamentarian army, or does he turn around and go to Worcester to save his uncle? Now... The Earl of Newcastle has a chief of staff. His name is Lord Iphon. He is Scottish. And he was all for. Fighting the English. But he didn't want to fight the Scottish. So as soon as he realised. That the Scottish army had. Sided with the parliamentarians. He was against fighting them. Because that's his own countrymen. He was quite happy to kill Englishmen. But not, not men from his own country. And. They decided that it was tough and they had to march. They had to fight as soon as they could. So the weary soldiers of York marched south to help the king and to chase after these parliamentarians. And essentially they were going to fight. There was no two ways about it. Unbeknown to Rupert, the king had beaten the army he was coming up against at Crop-Heddy Bridge, which meant that the need for Rupert to march to him was not as great as he may have thought. However, Rupert still had this plan in the back of his head to chase the parliamentarians, beat them in battle, and then rush to save his uncle. Because there was no telephones or anything like that, he wasn't aware that the need for him to be there had changed. Prince Rupert finally caught up with the Rear of the parliamentarian force at Marston Moor and this became possibly the most decisive battle in the English Civil War the Battle of Marsden Moor saw the invincible or so it seemed invincible Prince Rupert of the Rhine come up against Lieutenant Colonel now Lieutenant Colonel Oliver Cromwell 45,000 men did battle at Marsden Moor and over four thousand died on the first or on the day. Was it was over over one day. The Royalists were solely defeated. And this meant that Rupert was now not so invincible. Now there is a story that goes that Prince Rupert decided to hide in a bean field and cry that his army had been defeated whether we know this is true or not we don't know but it certainly cemented Oliver Cromwell in a position of being this great military leader the next major battle happened in 1645 and that was the Battle of Naseby now the Battle of Naseby was possibly the biggest defeat for the royalists in the entire civil war the parliamentarians destroyed them they killed or captured every single soldier they had only the royalist cavalry escaped every other infantryman was captured or killed at the battle of Naseby this left the king without an army the parliamentarians also came across information at this battle that suggested the king was using other countries to support his own cause this was against the law and was used to pretty much um, cement the executioner's acts on the king he was now a fugitive he was wanted for treason against his own country and, yeah, he was, the for the first time in English history, a king was wanted for, for treason in his own country. And it really didn't look very good. However, the parliamentarians couldn't decide what to do. You've got to remember that they didn't all want the king dead. Some of them did. Some of them were quite happy still to have a peace treaty with the king and restore the king to his rightful place as monarch a lot of parliamentarians just went to war because they didn't agree with the king's advisors not because they didn't agree with the king so it was still a massive debate and this is something that plays a really big part going forwards so the king is pretty much defeated and he's got to come up with a plan now he has one ally in Scotland who is defeated and he has no option basically there is evidence to suggest that he attempted to gain a Catholic army from Ireland an army that he had attempted a, a peace treaty with two years before that this never actually came to fruition and his army or what was left of his army basically roamed around england and couldn't gain any support he spent the next year um, pretty much on the run until he surrendered the following year in uh, 1646 in september prince rupert uh, surrendered the city of bristol to which the king decides to exile him now, considering that his army was defeated, he had very little help from anywhere else in the country, um, he still believed that Bristol was important and he believed that Rupert should never have surrendered the city. However, um, realistically, Rupert probably did the right thing um, in the circumstances and unfortunately his reward for fighting on valiantly throughout the entire civil war was to be exiled out of the country by his uncle now considering that you might think well how can the king do that when he's lost the civil war well yeah he had lost the war but he was still king and this was important uh, because like I said he had not been executed he had not been trialed and a lot of people in parliament still wanted to keep the king so he still had a little bit of power and he exercised that right by um by doing what he did to prince rupert which is it seems very strange considering rupert was pretty much his most loyal soldier throughout the entire war after the fall of bristol uh, fairfax took control of the west country and most oh, what was left of uh, the Royalist strongholds slowly diminished and, and surrendered. King Charles surrendered to the Scottish uh, at Newark in uh, 16, uh, 1646, and the Scottish, in answer to his surrender, forced him to surrender all garrisons and all royalist strongholds across the country. Now, we suggest that, uh, potentially, Charles went to the Scottish in particular to try and get them to flip sides and fight for him, but obviously that didn't work. You would think that would be the end of it in 1646. However, the king was captured, and he spent two years playing the groups of Parliament off against each other, and refused to actually admit that he'd been defeated, even though it was pretty evident that he had. He refused that, and tried to play devil's advocate in Parliament. Uh, Yeah, it kind of worked in his favour, but that's what he tried to do, just to uh, prolong the, the inevitable well, the inevitable walk along the scaffold. The main rift in Parliament was between the old-school, the Presbyterian side of Parliament, who were quite happy to come up with some form of agreement with the king and run alongside the king, like they had done throughout history. And the other side was made up of what we call the army. This was the new army, the new parliamentary army and this was led by that now was led by oliver cromwell and they were gaining more and more influence in parliament obviously the army had a slightly different uh, idea of what they wanted to happen with the king and they certainly didn't want to see him have any power back especially power over the army now you might think here that the army just wanted rid of the king but that wasn't the case and Oliver Cromwell in particular was not anti-royal he was very much pro-royal but anti the royal advisors he didn't like the king's advisors he didn't like anything that had happened in the previous few years but he didn't put it down to the king, he blamed along with many people in parliament he blamed the advisors and now the advisers were no longer there. He believed that there was a potential of coming up with some form of agreement with the king. That meant the army could run perfectly, the country could run well, and the religion in the country would be acceptable to all those involved. However, Oliver Cromwell got wind of the parliamentary thought process to get rid of the army now this wasn't as in to get rid of the army completely they had a plan to move most of the army generals and the main bulk of the army over to Ireland to squash the rebellions that were coming on in Ireland this meant that the Presbyterian side of parliament would now be in charge because they would outnumber and have complete control over the over parliament when Oliver Cromwell found wind of this he sent the army in to capture the king he took control of the king and placed him under army protection essentially they kidnapped him King Charles obviously found this quite funny because he'd been fighting the parliamentarians for years and all of a sudden he's lost the war and now the parliamentarians are fighting each other, so he doesn 't even need to he doesn 't even need to fight to win. Um, his mind is now basically on the basis of well, i can 't win this on the field; I might as well win it in the political battle because clearly these two sides don 't like each other, and maybe my cause will win on the basis of politics alone. King Charles was placed at Hampton Court, where he was offered a deal. Now this was called the Heads of the Proposals Act, which was put to King Charles, which was pretty much a better deal than what what he deserved, really. Um, this deal meant that majority of royalists were pardoned. There would be a ban on certain Royalists uh, entering the House of Commons or entering Parliament for a period of a year, so not completely, just for a year. There was a broader spectrum on religion, on Protestant groups in the country, and the king would keep his powers, he would remain in power, and he would have to share certain powers for a period of 10 years. So, powers such as control over the army, the navy, things like that, he would have to share that for ten years. After a ten-year period, he would start to get those powers back. King Charles, being the man who he was, pretty much flat-out rejected it. Um, That, I think, would have... That, that kind of signed his death warrant, really, he was offered a pretty good deal, but he didn't want to be a figurehead king. He wanted complete control, and they weren't going to give it to him. You know, The reasons the Civil War came around in the first place was the fact that King Charles's complete control was not working for the country, um, and he wanted that back. And unless they were going to give it him that back, he was going to reject every single deal that was put on his table. Early in 1648, Oliver Cromwell finds out that Charles has been plotting behind his back. He's been talking to the Scottish. He has a plan. Now, the Parliamentary Army, the new model army run by Oliver Cromwell, has not been paid since the end of the Civil War. So for two years, this army has not been paid they still owed money and they are very, very angry, as you can understand. Charles wants to take complete advantage of this. And his plan is to march 10,000 Scots south into England to take back his country and force people to put him back in full power. Now, he comes up with a decision to make the church of england a presbyterian church which would satisfy the scottish needs because the scotland at the moment is a presbyterian uh, country and that would mean that their church would now be the english church as well so they would get what they wanted and the king can actually do this unlike the previous treaty that would sort of promise that this would guarantee that their Presbyterian Church would be in England as well. Charles escaped Hampton Court and fled to the Isle of Wight. Unfortunately, for him, the Lord of the Isle of Wight was not a royalist, and he ended up being imprisoned on the Isle of Wight as well. What this meant was that because he escaped, it now gave the royalist ar- uh, sorry the Royalist the parliamentary army under Oliver Cromwell the unification that it needed to go after the king now he had escaped they had one enemy and one enemy alone it didn't matter about all the other factions all the other rifts that were going on now they had evidence that he'd escaped and the only reason he would have escaped meant that he was now a fugitive again in his own country so against all the odds Although he'd been imprisoned, Charles had manufactured a second civil war in England. With the Scottish marching south, a lot of towns and cities across England were yet again declaring themselves royal. The problem the royals had was it was very, very unorganised. A town in Yorkshire, for example, would declare for the king and then be squashed by parliamentary forces that were far superior in the area as the scottish were marching down from scotland they were coming across very very well organized uh, parliamentary uh, armies that that could take out big big chunks of their army and they were not marching into areas where the royals the royalist support was because there was no way of knowing where the royalist support was as they marched south um, it was very very disorganized and sort of failed almost right from the start um not to you know to to put against it obviously a lot of people lost their lives and and a lot of people did did still support the royalist cause but without the cohesion that they had in the previous civil war um there was really no hope for the Royalists to actually achieve victory. There were many problems that the Royalists faced. Um, the Royalists took the city of Carlisle in the north of England in hope to be backed up by the Scottish. Um, for example, the Scottish Rebels or the Scottish Royals um, faced problems in their own country. You know, a lot of these. Um, men had fought on the parliamentary side uh, a few years beforehand and didn't want to go and fight for the king there was a lot of animosity against the royalist Scottish army um, causing battles in Scotland before the Scottish army even left to come to England royalist rebels in Kent were put down in maidstone by Fairfax the navy was uh, had a lot of mutinies. There was a lot of things in the navy that, that went to the royalists. Um, but again, these were very short-lived and, and squashed very quickly. When the Scottish army finally crossed into England, they were met at the town of Preston by Oliver Cromwell and the parliamentary forces. Cromwell, being a very good military leader, decided to come in at the back of the army. Now, the Scottish army was marching south towards London and was very, very stretched out. When Cromwell reached the back of the Scottish army, he found a very, very small force and chipped away at the small force at the back. He was actually outnumbered by the full extent of the army. However, when he met the rear of the Scottish army, he outnumbered them the rest of the scottish army were maybe 2 to 3 miles away in the, inside the city of preston and the scottish cavalry was even further away in the town of wigan so the scottish army was stretched over maybe 10 to 15 miles and cromwell took massive advantage of this the scots that were left carried on marching and met the rest of cromwell's army in warrington in august 1648 where they were comprehensively and finally defeated with the scottish defeated all minor royalist garrisons that had sprung up uh, around the summer of 1648 surrendered knowing that there was no reinforcements coming to them And the second English Civil War, or the second part of the English Civil War, was over. Now, King Charles had one trick left up his sleeve. Should he play it? And that was that the army was now, the parliamentary army that is, was now in battle. The majority in Parliament was the Presbyterian parliamentarians, who were in support of the king, almost not completely but almost and even though the king had engineered a second civil war they still wanted the king back in London in charge maybe not with the same powers but they wanted him back they didn't want to see him executed and they went to the Isle of Wight to talk to him and to come up with a deal yet again King Charles stuck to his guns and refused the deal When the army returned to Parliament, both sides realised that there's only one outcome here, and that is we either restore the king completely and everybody in Parliament will probably be dissolved, because that's what happened last time, the king dissolved Parliament, or execution. Now, everyone was thinking it, And the one man that said it, and the one man that got so much fame from saying it, was Oliver Cromwell. He was the first man to stand up and say what everybody was thinking, and that was, the king needs to be executed. We need to get rid of the king completely. Even though this had to go through Parliament, Cromwell knew that he was still technically outnumbered. Although realistically the only way to sort things out in England was regicide which is the execution of a monarch Um, he realised that the Presbyterian side of parliament were probably not going to vote for that so he did what he could and that was to stop them from being able to take their seats in parliament so he stationed troops outside, kidnapped some arrested some, stopped them from getting into Parliament so that him and his followers were the only ones in Parliament to make the vote when the vote really counted. On the 20th of January 1649, the trial began. Now King Charles made a speech in Parliament basically saying that under what authority, legal authority, do Parliament have to do this basically he is the sovereign king he is appointed by god to rule over his country and his people in the way that he seems fit that is part of british law and what law do they have that suggests that he should not that he should be tried in this way now obviously they don't have any law they have no legal right to do what they were doing it may have seemed like the right decision but legally it was wrong and they basically told the king that he was not allowed to speak for the rest of, uh, rest of the trial so obviously what he said had some sort of effect obviously I'm sure you guys have worked out already that the king was found guilty and sentenced to death now he was sentenced on the 20th of january 1649 and his death was on the 30th of january 1649 where he was beheaded in london the last few days of the king's life he spent praying and talking to his children there is paintings and pictures well obviously not pictures but paintings of um, him spending the last few days talking to his son, Charles, um, and his daughter, and obviously explaining to them not to not to become royal. You know, basically, don't take the crown, don't take the crown. You, you know, you're going to end up the same way. Um, so, yeah, on uh, the 30th of January, 1649, uh, was the first time and last time in English history That a king has been uh, executed. Now there have actually been two other executions. Of British monarchs. But they were both queens. The first one was Lady Jane Grey. She was executed on the 12th of February 1554. And the other one was Mary the First. Now obviously Mary the First. This is Mary Queen of Scots. So she was technically a British queen. um, But essentially... Uh, for an English monarch. Uh, and, and you can argue the point as to whether Lady Jane Grey. Um, is classified as a queen. She technically never had the queen title. Um, but she was crowned. So it's a hard one. Lady Jane Grey. Um, but officially. Yeah King Charles. The only English monarch ever to be uh, beheaded. Certainly the only uh, English king ever to be beheaded by the executioner. So. Um, That was the end of the English Civil War. Now, uh, I hope you guys enjoyed that. And I am quite interested in uh, pursuing this for the next episode. And going into the man of the hour. And that is Oliver Cromwell. Because the next few years are very, very interesting under Oliver Cromwell. So, that may be the next episode. Uh, It may be something different. But uh, you'll have to stay posted and get on Facebook and have a look. You'll have to stay up to date and see if we're going to have Oliver Cromwell next. Or maybe I'll tease you with something a little bit different and pop Oliver Cromwell in at a later date. But for now, I hope you all enjoyed that. I hope you've all learned something about the English Civil War. And just remember, guys, we all have history, so make yours great. Bye-bye. GEICO presents Daily Affirmations. Repeat after me. Our thoughts are like the ocean. Our thoughts are like the ocean. Our thoughts create our reality. Our thoughts create our reality. We're thinking GEICO offers claim service 24-7 with personalized attention from an assigned team. GEICO offers claim service? Um, I, I wasn't thinking that. We think it and it becomes our reality. So, uh, what about washboard abs? Let's give it a go. Think really hard. Okay, abs, abs, abs. Yep, abs. keep thinking. To manifest more GEICO in your life, go to GEICO.com. Finding the right person for the job isn't easy. Just ask someone who hired a stuntman to do their home renovations. Just finished a new sunroom, Mrs. C. The best part is I used candy glass for all the windows. So you can do this. And this. Doesn't hurt a bit either. But if you've got an insurance question, you can always count on your local GEICO agent. They can bundle your policies, which could save you hundreds. And if you don't want to take the long way to the kitchen, the walls are breakaway too. See? See? <laughs>